0: Welcome to the Epicenter Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message from the Gospel Series, where we reveal one book of the New Testament every week. For more information about Epicenter Church, visit epicenterchurch.com.au I thank you that you are good, Jesus. And God, I thank you, like what Beck reminded us in pre-service prayer, Jesus, that we're to speak life into people's hearts, Jesus. That we're to speak freedom into people's lives, God, and that you're a God that speaks life into us, Father. And so I pray tonight, Jesus, as, as I go through the book of Philemon, Father, I pray that that theme comes out of it, a theme, Jesus, where you're wanting to speak life into people's hearts, Jesus. You're wanting to bring people into freedom, Father, and you're wanting us to partake with you in that, Jesus, and look at people, Father, as though they are a brother and sister in Christ, in Jesus' name. And everybody said... So we've had, like, like literally throughout December, we had a month off our New Testament series. And we're up to filament So we've only got a handful more books to go till uh, we've finished that. But who liked what Nathan had to say last week? Yeah. It was a great message. Uh, really enjoyed it. I took heaps of um, notes, heaps of points. And today I've got the opportunity to run through Filament, which realistically, I don't know how to pronounce that book properly. But that's, that's proper? Someone said that's proper? That's Philemon. Yeah, well, it's Philemon today, Paul, and that's going to work, work for me. So if everyone wants to open up to the book of um, Philemon, Philemon, Filing Man, <laughs> a book written by Paul to a guy with a name in Greek that I can't pronounce. Um, so it's only one, one, uh, one chapter, and it's chapter one, so open up to chapter one. And we'll start there. And the opening of this book is, it is a book written by Paul to a guy called Philemon. Yep. And it's about, and this guy, he's a member of the Colossian church. And it's about freeing a slave named, I actually got this right and I've been practicing it, but it has missed my mind. Um, Unimus. Paul? Right. David, be quiet. I know you're stirring me right now. So the book is about Paul writing to a guy who is a slave owner, about a slave that he ultimately, what you'll discover through the book, is Onimus, oneamus, whatever this guy is called. I'm not a Greek theologian, so forgive me. That this guy is a, is a runaway slave. And he runs away from Philemon, the slave owner, and finds his way to Paul. Paul meets him. Paul gets to know him. Paul leads him to Christ. And now Paul is sending him back to the slave owner. and Which we'll get into it a little bit, which is uh, relatively quite unique in that time period as to send a slave back, hoping that the best is going to happen for him, which realistically, normally the worst would um, be expected to happen. But we'll pick it up in, obviously, verse 1 of... Chapter 1, and it says this, it says that this letter is from Paul, a prisoner for preaching the good news about Christ Jesus and from our brother Timothy. I'm writing to Philemon, our beloved co-worker, and to our sister, a and our fellow soldier, soldier Archibald, we'll call him for the sake of this, and to the church that meets in your house, my God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, give you grace and peace. I love the statement that Paul opens up in this book. It's the only time in the New Testament where Paul opens up in this regard. Normally, he opens up with a statement saying, Paul, an apostle. Paul, uh, this, Paul, that. But it's normally Paul, an apostle. But Paul opens up differently. He says, I'm a slave. I'm a servant. And I find it really unique because from the get-go, from the opening moment where Paul says, I'm a prisoner, or in other translations says, I'm a slave, he is introducing this concept right into a slave owner and addressing himself as a slave. And completely with the whole idea, the whole concept is to turn this guy's whole world up around. How he views life, how he views people, how he views um, his servants or his slaves, how he views everything. He decides to flip it all around and says, you know what, I'm a slave. And you're a slave owner and I'm writing to you as a slave of Christ Jesus or a prisoner of Christ Jesus. At this time, Paul was in prison for the gospel. And Paul's making a statement here that becomes a sub-theme for the entire book. And the sub-theme is that Paul is writing because he's wanting to free a slave. He's wanting to see a a slave brought into freedom. He's wanting to see a a slave... um, be met with dignity, be met with honour, be met with everything that Paul would be met with. So he opens it, opens it up like this. I, Paul, I'm a slave. I am a servant. I'm a prisoner. I am this. I am no higher than the guy that I'm going to be sending to you. And we'll get through that in a little bit where Paul starts talking about I'm sending someone to you. But ultimately he's, he's setting the scene. The whole theme of the book is I'm sending someone to you that I am no better than. Society may disagree, But I am no better than. They are not below me. I am not above them. We are on an equal playing field. And so he's opening up. And what I find fascinating about this is in the Christian church, this is a relatively or maybe in in the more modern Christian church, this sometimes is a theme that we leave alone. Servanthood or a slave or obedience. We have this idea that the Christian lifestyle sometimes takes on a rock star effect where God's always wanting to give us multi, multi millions of dollars, or He's wanting to give us this. He's wanting to bless us with more than we can even fathom. And I believe that God's wanting to bless us, but I believe that our terminology and what blessing is and what God's terminology and what blessing is looks very different. We've got this perception that the Christian lifestyle is a lifestyle of what I want, of what makes me feel good and therefore that must be from God. We've got this idea that the Christian lifestyle is all about God giving us the desires of our heart rather than us fulfilling the desires that God places in our hearts. There's a big difference between a desire that's in my heart that's my desire and a desire that God places in there. Because for those of you that have experienced it, there comes a time sometimes in life With what God places in you and what is already in your heart that you're wanting to do are two different things and they run contrary to each other. And a battle sometimes goes on inside of us. What do I do? Do I do what's in my heart or do what God has placed in my heart? And it comes down to obedience. And so Paul opens it up with, I'm a servant, I'm doing what God is asking me to do. And ultimately that's what a servant does, or that's what a slave does. A slave is owned by their master. A slave does what the master tells him to do. If I own slaves and I said, go and do this. They've got no choice but to go and do this. And the same thing with our relationship with God and what Paul is opening up and what Paul is talking about here is I'm a slave to God. I'm doing what God is telling me to do. And I'll go where God is telling me to go regardless of the cost to me, regardless of the cost of my emotions, regardless of the cost to my physical body, regardless of the cost of anything, I will go and I will do what God is calling me to do because I want to be obedient to Him. Our culture has a culture of I should be served rather than I should serve. When Jesus turned up, Jesus demonstrated what it was to love God, and that was to serve, to serve God, to serve people. Our Western culture has, has oftentimes flipped around where we want to be served. It's all about us. I sat at the drive-thru at Hungry Jack's today trying to get my lunch for 25 minutes. I was not being served. And I got really agitated. And it's just one small example, of course, but ultimately our whole life or in our Western culture for the most part is all about us being served. I'm not saying that we can't be served or we can't allow people to serve us because if we're always stopping people from serving us because we're trying to be like, really low and humble then we don't allow someone else to bless us so that there's a balance that we need to allow people to serve us but if life is all about me being served then I've completely missed it and especially as a Christian if life is all about me being served by people and served by God I've missed what relationship with him is We have a poor perception in our Christian life that God is all about us, is all about wrapping us in cotton wool so that nothing bad happens to us. And when it does, God is getting us out of there as quickly as he can. And we've got this letter being written by Paul from a Roman prison that God isn't getting him out of any time fast, but rather in that place, he sees it as an opportunity to love, to serve God. And the question that Paul raises in this Is are you a master or you're a servant? Are you a master or you're a slave? What are you choosing to be towards God specifically and towards people? Are we choosing to be a master over people or are we choosing to serve people because God wants us to serve people? Because God's encouraging us and calling us to serve people. How that looks for all of us looks very different. But ultimately, before we move on in, in in this epistle, the fact is that Paul is outlining that I'm a slave for the, for the simple fact that every single one of us are slaves in one form or the other. Romans 6, 16 to 17 says this, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. You're a slave of one of two things. Throughout the Bible, there's one or two things you'll be enslaved to in your life, whether you're a Christian or not. Whether If you're a Christian, the hope is that you're in slavehood or you are a slave to God, a slave to obedience, a slave to doing what He has placed in your heart, following His will, doing what He's called you to do, or you're a slave to sin. Slaves to obedience and obedience is not a loss of what is good for me. Obedience is rather submitting to God, what God requires of us living how He wants us to live. Um, Obedience looks like reading the Bible, learning what God wants to say to us, what God has spoken to us, what God is continuing to speak into us, searching for His voice through the Bible, developing a prayer life, getting to know God, building a relationship. It looks like sharing your faith. This is obedience to God. And obedience, obviously, for every single one of us gets a lot broader because all of us have different callings that God places on our hearts. He's got different things that He places in our hearts for every single one of us to do. So we can't necessarily just cookie-cut mold what obedience looks like because it's different for everyone. But what it does look like is it is building a relationship with God and is following what He is telling you to do. Or the other thing is that you can be a slave to sin. Sin is basically doing what I want to do rather than what God wants me to do. Throughout the Old Testament specifically, there's three main words translated as sin. And so I'm just going to really quickly go through them. So it just gives us a good definition of what sin is. Because ultimately, normally when we talk about slavehood, and you're either a slave to God, as far as you're serving God, or you you're a slave to sin, you're serving sin. The question easily comes up, well, how do I sin? How am I a sinner? How do I do this? How do I do that? Because... Our culture doesn't necessarily have an understanding of what sin is, and so the first word, um, the meaning is to be mistaken, to be found um, in lacking of, to be at fault, to miss a specified goal or mark, and ultimately means this: it was an accident. I thought about having sex with someone who was not my spouse. I don't believe in Jesus. I stole from someone. He looked at my girlfriend, so I decided to hit him. I made a promise, but I broke it, etc. The next word means this. It means to rebel, to revolt, to transgress. And ways to describe that could be to worship other gods. To do what I want, kind of like a toddler throwing a tantrum. I'm going to do it because I want to do it. To curse Jesus as the devil, um, etc. Or the other one is error or iniquity. And it means or could be elaborated on as to do something that is just plain wrong, like murder. To do something that is grossly wrong, like pedophilia. Or cetera, and goes, you could throw a hundred other things in there. But the reality is, and I wanted to list them off, not because I wanted to point fingers at anyone, but rather to highlight, before we are Christians, we were slaves to something. Before we came to know Jesus, we were slaves to something, and that was sin. You won't get away from that. We were all born with it. We were all born into it. Sin affected us from the start of when we were born and we became slaves to it. And ultimately that slavehood outworked Then I'm going to do what is best for me because I want to do what I want to do. And then when we met Christ, Christ made us a new creation. And now sin no longer has control of us. Sin no longer now has dominion of us. We are not slaves to sin anymore, but rather we are slaves, the Bible says, to righteousness. We are slaves to God. We are slaves to being obedient to God and obviously The issue with the word slavery is it's a strong word because it has a lot of connotations that foster some very unpleasant thoughts in our minds. Um, But the reality is you're a slave to something. You're either a slave to sin doing what you want to do that is anti to what God wants to do or you're a slave to doing what God is calling you to do. We're all on a journey. Just because we're Christians doesn't mean we're not going to stuff up, doesn't mean we're not going to do something wrong, doesn't mean we're not going to do a quote-unquote sin, but it doesn't make you a non-Christian, doesn't make you a slave to sin again. It means you messed up. That's all it is. We're either a slave to sin or a slave to God. And So Paul's opening the book up with that thought. I'm a slave to something. I'm a slave to God. And he goes on in from verse 4. It says, I always thank my God when I pray for you, Philemon, Because I keep hearing about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people. And I am praying that you will put into action the generosity that comes from your faith as you as you understand and experience all the good things we have in Christ. Your love has given me much joy and comfort, my brother. For your kindness has often refreshed the hearts of God's people. A slight segue for a minute as as far as the direction that we're heading, and then we'll come straight back to it. I think we could learn a lot about conflict resolution from, from this verse in specifics. Just after this, Paul's about to basically bring a bombshell to this guy's life where he's going to ask him to release this guy as a slave. He's going to be sending him back to him and so forth. But before he does that, he reiterates what he's good at. Reiterates all the great things about him, the great attributes that God's placed in him, the great attributes that that, um, that, that he's been fostered out of his being. And he's got great faith. He loves God's people. His kindness has been refreshing to Paul and all of God's people. And I love it how Paul stops and and he builds him up and he encourages him and tells him everything that is good about him, everything that God has placed in him, everything that God is drawing at him and everything that God is doing in him. And it's a basic point of of conflict resolution or moving into a discussion that sometimes isn't going to be overly comfortable and which this one's not going to be overly comfortable. Be like if I went to you and, and said that God's telling me well oh, I feel that God's telling me, you like Lennon, you've got to give me your trucks. That's his possessions. I haven't got a truck license, but I'm sure I can find drivers. I think God is telling me to give you you to give me my trucks. Ultimately, what Paul is about to do is he is gonna subtly do that. He is gonna ask him for his possession to be given up. And I love how he introduces it here, he lists his attributes, he lists his positive parts, he lists everything that God's placed in him, what he's doing in there. And I think for most of us, we could say the same thing of ourselves if we're honest. I know if we're honest as well, we can see the negative parts of ourselves. But also if we're honest, we can look in ourselves and see what God is doing in us. Over the course of time, we can see the positive things that God has placed in us and is drawing out. We can look at the person beside us and see the positive things that God is drawing out and that God is doing in people. And any time that we're going to challenge someone, the best thing that we can do is uplift them. And so Paul does that and then right in the middle, and I love how he does it, He lists all his attributes and then he says, this is what I'm praying for you for. And I love that this demonstrates for one, Paul's prayer life, that he is praying for this guy. He's praying for all sorts of churches. He's praying for all sorts of people. But he says, I am praying, cheers, John. I'm praying that you will put into action the generosity that comes from your faith as you understand and experience the good things that we have in Christ. And I love how he. This guy sounds awesome. He's that person that walks into into your life, no matter what season that you're in, and you're in the pits, it sucks. And he uplifts you and he refreshes you. He's he's that person that comes in and he lifts everyone up. Like the person that walks into this room when it's flatlined, and one word out of his mouth and everyone's woof. Like everyone's excited. Everyone's on the edge of their seats. Everyone is wanting to pursue Jesus. He's that person. He's got life in him. And often we, we look at those people and they're, like, they're the best person ever. God's done so much in them. God's doing so much in them. But even the best person ever can have faults. And this is what Paul was introducing here. That He says that I pray. Don't worry about it this time, John. It's fine. He says, I am praying that you will put into action the generosity that comes from your faith as you understand and experience all the good things that we have in Christ Jesus because the reality is that faith must be accompanied by deeds. Oh, cheers, Chris. I actually don't need it, but that's, that's cool. Uh, James 2.18 says this. It says, Now, someone may argue. Some people have faith. Others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? And I will show you my faith by my good deeds. And the reality is this, that I can love the body but miss loving a stranger. I can treat the body like brothers and sisters, but treat an outsider like a slave. We could, I could, all of us could preach a message that liberates people, but hold a person in bondage. Christians are... Generally, and I'm not specifying us as a church nor pointing my finger at any one church, but globally, Christians are really good at destroying their own people. Most Christians actually graduate out of church with a PhD in destroying their own people. I heard, I I can't remember who it was. It was one of the conferences I went to, so I can't remember who the the person it was, but they, they said this statement. They said, Satan doesn't need to take any of our leaders down. He just needs to kneecap them and the Christians destroy them. We're good at looking for everything that's wrong in people. We're good at talking about love. We're not necessarily good at at loving people. We're, We're good at facing up to someone and saying, I love you, but then destroying them behind their backs. We're good at devouring one another. And ultimately, when we do that, what we do is we hold people into slavery. We put them into bondage. We put them into slavehood by our words, by our actions, by what we are saying about them. Beck said at a pre service prayer, she said, The power of life, life and death is in the tongue. We can put people into bondage. We can put people into slavery by what we say. What we speak over their lives can become a stronghold that holds them there. What I say to you can either build you up or destroy you. What you say to me can either build me up or destroy me. It can liberate me into freedom or it can hold me in complete bondage. The reality is this holding people in slavery to sin when they are a runaway slave is wrong. We're all slaves. Holding people to that place as far as a slave to sin is wrong. Holding people to that slavehood that that sin is a master over them is wrong. We should be the people that are looking to draw the gold out of them. We should be the people that's looking to liberate them, to bring them into freedom, to bring them into a relationship with Christ. We should be looking amongst ourselves to what is right with us. We should be looking amongst ourselves to further liberate us, to further draw us into what God has placed in our hearts. Holding people... In slavery looks like viewing people or holding Christians in slavery looks like viewing them through who they once were. Maybe before they knew Christ, they were this. And we keep interacting with them. From that standpoint, without realising that God has done a work in their life and they're now moving over here and we keep interacting with them and speaking to them and communicating with them as though they're still the person that they were before they met Jesus. And so all we keep doing is dragging them back further down the chain, back to the place where they started from. It is focusing on what we disagree with. It is disbelieving the work God has done in them. It is condemning them from their chosen denomination that we may not agree with. philemon 8 goes on and this is now where paul is opening up and he's about to ask him the question he's about to present to him hey maybe you should free this guy and he says that is why i am boldly asking a favor of you and he says i could demand it in the name of christ because it is the right thing for you to do but because of our love I prefer to simply ask you, consider this as a request from me, Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner for the sake of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you to show kindness to my child, Onimus. I became his father in the faith faith while here in prison. Onimus hasn't been of much use to you in the past, but now he is useful to both of us. I am sending him back to you, and with him comes my very heart." The question Paul is asking Philemon is this, how are you going to treat a runaway slave? And in Jewish culture, or not in Jewish culture, sorry, in Greek Roman culture, I think it was two out of every three people were slaves. And it's not necessarily how we see slavery as far as African Americans chained on ships, being marched over, held in bondage. The place was riddled with poverty. So there was a lot of Slaves that were just bought and sold as slaves, but there was a lot of voluntary slaves. You didn't have enough money to feed yourself. You didn't have enough money to fend for yourself, and so you'd put yourself into slavery in order that you could be fed. And most of this became a generational thing that you just you you couldn't get out of it. They're not going to give you a pretty penny every time you show up for work. Like you're a slave. You don't get paid. You do what you're told. You get fed. That's all you get. And so for most people, this was a generational thing that took place. But because slaves had become such common, nearly everyone was a slave as far as with the ratios. There was that many slaves. There are a dime a dozen. They're worthless. And if a slave ran away, this is what would happen to him. At best, he would be branded with a red hot iron with the letter F, meaning fugitive, meaning ran away. That was the best outcome that was going to be taking place. The worst outcome, which was the more likely outcome, was death. That they'd be killed. They were a runaway slave. There was no point trying to keep them. There was no point trying to work with them because they just cost me too much headache. Is he going to run again? Are they going to steal more stuff? Are they going to do this? Let's just end their life. Let's leave it there. Let's keep going. And so. The concept that Paul's sending him back to his master is a relatively scary one. I don't really know how Onimus felt about it because he doesn't say it at all. But rather, Paul's sending him back there and he could have said to him, I am demanding this of you. This is what Christ says. But he says, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm asking you in love. Will you consider to do this? Will you consider to look at this guy differently? Paul is sending him back to his original master. And Paul is asking him the question, how are you going to treat a slave? How are you specifically going to treat a runaway slave? Slave. Some that has run away for you. For us as Christians now, or for us as Westerners, this doesn't make much sense to us in that we don't have slaves. None of us were born into slavery. Some of us might have ancestors that were slaves, but none of us in this generation were born into slavery. So the whole thought of a runaway slave doesn't make much sense to us. But spiritually speaking, we have runaway slaves. If everyone is a slave to something, either a slave to sin or a slave to God, we have, spiritually speaking, runaway slaves. And so I've listed a handful of things and you can put a hundred other things into here of what could be a runaway slave. But the question that I'm going to pose to you is, how are you going to treat a runaway slave? Spiritually, not physically. A runaway slave spiritually could look like a Christian that has walked away, chosen to walk away from God. But choose to come back to God. How are you going to treat him? A runaway slave is someone who is in and out of their relationship with God. You know those people that they go high up on the mountain and they crash down, and then high up on the mountain and they crash down, and then high up on the mountain and they crash down, and it just keeps and it seems like forever throughout their lives. They're up and down, up and down. And I'm not talk, we all go through up and downs, but these guys, like these people, they are right up on top of Everest on the highest moments of their Christian war. But the very next day, they'll be the very depth of the ocean. Like their Christian war, it's bipolar. It is off the charts. It's here, there and everywhere. But and ultimately, you can look at that person in those ups and downs and say, they're a runaway slave. Today, they're a slave of God. Tomorrow, they're a runaway slave. Today, they're a slave. Tomorrow, they're a runaway slave. And the question is, how are you going to treat that person? And maybe a person has a, a different viewpoint of what, is orthodox belief to you? Well, because they don't believe the same orthodoxy that you do. And orthodoxy, for those of you that don't know, is the fundamentals of our Christian belief. And different denominations have different views on what orthodoxy is. We can all agree on certain ones. But different denominations do have different standpoints of what is orthodox and what is not. And the reality is that we can look at someone with different standards as far as their orthodox belief and call them a runaway slave and therefore relate to them as something different. And maybe they're part of our belief They went to another denomination and we look at them as a runaway slave. How are you going to treat that person? Or the other one is a person that has walked away from God and hasn't yet come back to God. How are you going to treat them? Are you with me so far? Yeah. yeah. If we skip down in um, filament to verses fifteen, it says this: "It says it seems you lost Onesimus for a little while, so that you could have him back forever. He is no longer a slave to you. He is more than a slave, for he is beloved. for he is a beloved brother, especially to me. Now he will mean much more to you, both as man and as." A brother in the Lord. And this is where Paul sums up what he's saying to him is this don't look at him as a slave anymore, rather, look at him as a brother. Paul sends this slave back to this guy that owned him and says, I don't want you any longer to look at him as a slave. I want you to look at him as a liberated man that is a brother in Christ. There is no difference between slave or free man. There's no difference between Jew and Greek. There is no difference between male and female. We're all one in Christ. And he is introducing this theme to him that this guy is not below you, but rather this guy is a brother alongside of you and he has got something to offer you and something to give you and something to impart to you. How are you going to treat him when he comes back? Will you treat him like a slave? And ultimately, we can ask the same question of ourselves how are we going to treat people that are a runaway slave? How are we going to treat people that maybe look different to us, that think different to us, that act different to us, that ultimately they're still believers? You could take this message a whole other way and say, well, how are you going to even treat slaves, full stop, as far as people that aren't Christians? But if we just keep it focused on people that declare to have a belief in Jesus, how are we going to treat them? How are we going to treat different ethnic groups or women? Statistically speaking, women are the most oppressed group of people in the world today. Statistically speaking, how we treat women, we treat them like slaves. Now, I'm not pointing the finger at the men here and saying, look, you know what, you guys treat your wives as slaves or women like slaves. But statistically speaking, the most oppressed group or people group in the world today is women. We have a habit of, of, as males of being quite chauvinistic, of talking down to our wives, of talking down to our sisters, of talking down to the girls around us. My grandfather's a classic, and obviously it was a generation. She thinks none the wiser of it. She's happy with it. But it's girly. Girly, make me tea. Girly, do this. Girly, do that. And it's relatively humorous when you're around, because it's like, who even says girly to start with? And Nana doesn't care. She just goes and like, does what he's asking to do. But ultimately what it is, it is speaking down to someone. I am speaking down to this person, they are below me. For those of you that know me know that I am very sarcastic and I'm going to share a little secret with everyone of how I talk to Sage and I get in trouble with Sage a lot for this because she knows that I'm being sarcastic and I don't mean anything by it but I keep mentioning it in front of people that they don't necessarily know I'm sarcastic or being sarcastic and Sage will say something and it may be something that I don't disagree with it at all or anything like that. It's just a humorous thing that I'll do. I'll turn around, I'll snap my fingers and say, you shut up, woman. Sage knows that I'm being sarcastic because I don't look at her as just woman. And when we're in the middle of the discussion, I'll never snap my fingers at her and call a woman, I'll always free with respect, and, and call a sage. But the reality is it's not uncommon for us as men to call our wives woman in the heat of an argument. Or when we really want to get our way, to actually squash them and tell them, no, you know what, sorry, this is just happening. Fact. There's no discussion here. We're doing it my way. That is a master lording over someone, treating someone as a slave. Husbands, how are you going to treat your wives? How are we going to treat people of other denominations? How are we going to treat Catholics, Baptists, um, uniting church people? How are we going to treat Christians that have a different standpoint on um, how creation took place? How are we going to treat Christians that have a differing theology on big issues? And there's some big issues that are floating around the Christian church at the moment that are big issues but they don't mean squat when it comes to salvation. How are we going to treat those people? Is it all about being right according to your eyes or is it rather about building them up in what God has placed in them? How are we going to treat handicapped, crippled, disabled people? Are we going to speak down to them as though they're second-class citizens and second-class human beings and not even necessarily worthy to be a human being or to be spoken like as an adult? Or are we going to speak to them as... Human beings on the same level as us. Are they slaves or are they brothers in Christ with us? How are we going to treat Christians that smoke? smoke? How are we going to treat Christians that drink? How are we going to cre- treat Christians that gamble or have tattoos or do this or do that? And Now, I'm not necessarily going into it and saying, well, this is a sin. That's a sin. You can't do this and you can't do that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be uh, necessarily a part of that. Because say gambling, for instance, well, you could have addiction to gambling. And then there's a big issue. But then there's someone else that maybe just goes and puts a punt on at the Melbourne Cup. Well, some Christians will jump up and down and they'll treat them different because now they're below them because they do this. How are we going to treat those people? How are we going to treat Christians that do what we view as wrong? How are we going to treat Christians that are from a low socioeconomic? How are we going to treat a convicted criminal that walks in here? And if I can pause for a minute and ask everyone to use their imagination as we begin to wrap up. I want you guys to think of a crime and maybe even think of a convicted criminal that you can even think of. Or just a crime that is the most disgusting, <laughs> demeaning, the, the worst possible thing that you can, you can physically think of. Anyone come up with it or something? You don't have to shout it out. It just as everyone's sort of got something in their heads. What is disturbing towards them? How are you going to treat someone like that that came to know Jesus and was transformed, would we treat that person like family or would we treat that person like a slave how they once were? Because their past life was this. They were this before they met Christ. This was the crime that they were convicted for. But this is who they are now. Christ has transformed them. And ultimately, this is what Paul is doing here. He is sending a guy back that was this, but now he is this. How is this guy going to treat him? And the question comes to us, how are we going to treat us? How are we going to treat one another? John 13, 35 says this, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How do we measure up when it comes to loving one another? How do we measure up when it comes to loving the person that potentially seems unlovable to us? How do we measure up at loving the disabled? How do we measure up at loving the people that appear to do wrong in our own opinion? How do we measure up at loving on the criminals? that come in as far as they're not necessarily criminals now and I'm even referring to them as criminals. But how do you measure up? How are you loving the people that maybe got a long rap sheet that did everything that was disgusting to you? How are you going at loving them for who they are now, for what God has done in them? Are we still treating these people like slaves or are we rather looking to treat them like the new creation that they are? And in regards to that person that you thought of or that crime that you thought of, the question could be, or the question is, if Brian Houston, and let's say Brian Houston maybe is our modern day Paul, maybe bad example, maybe great example, regardless of what you think, don't care. Um, but maybe Brian Houston sends us or sends to you that person that, you, that committed that crime that you thought about in your head. The question is, Brian's sending him to you because he's got something to give you, because he's got something to teach you, because he's got something to impart to you. How are you going to receive that person when he comes to you? Are you going to treat him like he once was? Are you going to treat him like a slave that he was? Or are you going to receive him as a brother? I want to end um, with this story, if the band can come up, please. Uh, There's a guy called Nicky Cruz. Uh, He was born in Puerto Rico. And for those of you that um, Nikki Cruz is a famous author of a book called Run Baby Run. For those of you who read it, will know the story. For those of you who haven't, I'm going to briefly go over the story. And basically, his parents mentally abused him in Puerto Rico. They mentally abused him. His own mother called him the son of Satan, and she would beat him till he was unconscious. His father would throw him. In, he would strip him naked and throw him into the into a, a pigeon into a cage of pigeons. And he would freak out and and then the pigeons would freak out and the pigeons would scratch all over him. He said he became so numb that he could take a knife and push it into his skin and break the skin and not feel it. He was so used to getting beaten. He was so used to getting flogged. He was so used to getting humiliated and shamed and and destroyed that he was numb from anything. He was numb from emotions. He was numb from physical. And when he was about 15, his parents sent him to live with his brother in, in New York City. But he didn't stay there for very long because he, by this stage, he didn't care. He didn't like people. He didn't like humanity. He wanted to make a way for himself. He wanted to do things his own way. So he, he left, he fled, he ran away, and he started living on the streets. And not long after he was living on the streets, he became a member of the um, More More, I used to be able to pronounce it, but we'll say the More More, More More, Street Gang, which at the time in New York was the most notorious street gang that there was. And about six months later, he was such vicious, had such hate, had such violence that he operated in, that Nikki Cruz walked up to being the warlord in the gang and being the president of the entire club after six months. He was the most feared person in New York. He was the most feared person in the gang. He was the most respected person in the gang. This guy was mean. Then after after a little bit of being the gang leader, this guy came named David Wilkinson. Some of you know who this guy is. He's a man that started Teen Challenge. Came along and he decided that he wanted to witness to specifically this group. And so he would go into the ghettos where the police wouldn't even go because he wanted to witness to these guys. And David had an encounter with Nikki Cruz. And David said to Nicky Cruz, he said, Jesus loves you. And Jesus will never stop loving you. And Nikki's response to that was to punch him in the face and say, don't ever come here and do that again. I don't want to see you again. And David responded to him is, quote, you can chop, you can chop me up into a thousand pieces and every piece will still love you back. A little while after that, David decided that he wanted to continue to interact with these people and, and, and save these people. And so he organized a crusade in the ghetto and deliberately to try and meet with the Marumos and, and see them come to receive Jesus. And Nikki Cruz and his gang came to this event basically with the intention of um, inflicting havoc on the place. But when Nikki got there, he felt guilty about the things that he had Done, and he began to pray and he began to seek, seek Jesus before he even entered the building. And as he entered the building, he was seeking Jesus. And so while he's in the, in, the, in the building, David Wilkinson's preaching. He's declaring the gospel. He's sharing the message of Jesus with these people. And everyone is mocking it by Nicky Cruz because something has happened in his heart already. God has already done something in him. He's already, he's already weeping. He's already pursuing God. He's already pursuing a relationship with God. And at the end of David's message, he decides that he's going to take up an offering. And a man of wisdom decides the best people to take up the offering to collect it is the gang leaders. And so he asked them if they would happily take up the offering. And so Nicky Cruz says, I'll volunteer and I'll do it. And so him and a heap of his gang members, they get up and they, they run around and they do what gang people do. And they demand money from everyone. <laughs> and so then David said, "You need now when you collect the money, you go up. And then you, you go around the back of the stage and then, then I'll call you up the stage and afterwards. And so there was this back room that they went to. And Nicky noticed when he got there, there was, there was a door saying exit so they could just escape the building. David wasn't stupid. He knew that existed there. And so all the, all the gang guys were like, let's bolt. Like This is the easiest score of our lives. Let's get out of here. And Nicky said, no, we're not doing this. This guy has entrusted us with something. We're going to present this money to him. So he goes out, presents the money to him. As far as the offering, David gives an altar call. A heap of the gang members come up, um, commit their lives to Jesus. David has an, has an opportunity to pray with them. Afterwards, Nicky and a heap of these guys that committed their life to Christ went to the police station and turned in all their bricks, handguns, knives and shocked the police officers in the station. And the police officer's quote was this, that if we had have looked up and saw them coming, we would have shot them on sight because we, thought that they, that we would have thought that they're coming to kill us. These guys are so feared that if they had just watched them walking into the station, they would have pulled out their guns and shot them. And they turned up and they handed everything out. And these guys met with disbelief. And I love that this story is like that because it all became because one person saw a free man inside of a slave and he decided that he would draw it out. He interacted with someone like he was a slave of God when maybe he was already a slave of sin. And the question is, when we have the the Nikki Cruises in our lives, how are we going to interact with them? When those people come in, in the midst of us as a church, how are we going to interact with them? When they come into our lives as individuals, are we going to interact with them like they're sons and daughters of God or are we going to look at them like the gang leader that they are or the evil person they are or whatever it is that we think we are and speak to them from that standpoint? And I guarantee that if David Wilkinson didn't interact with Nikki Cruz specifically in that way with that offering, Nicky Cruz's story would be different. Because he saw the gold in someone. He saw what God had placed in there. He saw what God was doing and he realized what God is doing. The question I've got for us today, are we realizing what God is doing in the lives of the person sitting next to us? And are we looking to bring that out? Are we looking to send someone back into bondage of slavery of sin? Um, Let me pray. Father, God, I know that sometimes this message isn't the easiest message, Jesus. But I pray that what I've got to share, Father, tonight, I pray that it challenges all of us, Father, to see what you've placed inside of someone, Father. To see the obedience that they're operating with you in, Father, and not see them for everything that they've done wrong, not see them for their past, Father, but always be looking for what you've created inside of them, Father. I pray that We can all be individuals that are like David Wilkinson's, Jesus, that are interacting with people like Nikki Cruz's, Jesus, in our own areas of influence, Father, and looking at that which is inside potentially the worst human being and seeing the goal that you've put in there, Father, and reaching in there and drawing that out, Jesus. I pray that as we go out, Father, that we are bold enough, Jesus. We are bold enough to treat people like humans. We are bold enough to treat people like, like the servants you've created them to be, Father. Not servants of sin, but rather servants of you. In Jesus' name. Amen. So I've asked the band to come up and they're just going to sing through that song that we sung before, Burning Ones. And I specifically asked them to do it. Because what I want to do, what I want to be, is I want to be someone that is being burnt for God. And part of burning for God looks like me putting myself into the flames of the fire. And so I asked us as, as we come and as we sing this song that it's a declaration of us as individuals and us as a church putting ourselves into the flames of God and allowing Him to do what He wants to do in and through our lives and us being obedient to that. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. Please subscribe to hear more sermons from Epicenter Church.